The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. You'll go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to be in verse 6 tonight. So Paul says, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And so Paul has been giving us uh, descriptions of love. And the last number of ones that we've looked at have all been uh, uh, negative descriptions. What love is, is not. And he gets to the final um, negative description Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. And then he immediately gives it a a, a parallel positive statement, but rejoices with the truth. And so the first thing that we have to do in thinking about what Paul's talking about here is we have to understand the idea of unrighteousness. And uh, in the text, the word unrighteous is just simply the word righteous with Uh, what's called an alpha privative, that is it negates an alpha and A, gets stuck on the front, and then negates it. And so it goes from righteousness to unrighteousness, or you could say wrongdoing, or wickedness, or even injustice. And uh, Jonathan Edwards' sermon on this uh, this verse is, uh, which is, is, of course, it's quite good, But Edward says, unrighteousness is everything that is bad, all right? Uh, Sinful life and practice. And so unrighteousness describes, in a sense, uh, everything that is contrary to or opposed to God and to his character and to his glory and to his standards in both the law and the gospel. And so unrighteousness in, 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 a, in its broadest sense would simply be that which is opposed to God in all of his glory. And so as we think about the, the context, of course, um, the apostle has already talked about pride and arrogance and self-importance, those things, of course, being common in the church at Corinth, pride was this monster sin for the Corinthians. Uh, and, of course, pride is, uh, at its very root, uh, unrighteousness. Right? And, so, and the reason is, is because pride rivals God's glory. And pride refuses to submit to God's standards. And instead, what pride does is pride elevates itself and its own standards even above God. Now, Paul has already dealt with this um, aspect of pride and unrighteousness back in chapter 5. Let me just read this to you. Uh, So you you remember, this goes back a while, obviously. Paul says it's actually reported 
that there's immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And, of course, there's this, there's this awful, grievous sin of this man who is having relations with, in all likelihood, a stepmother. And then this is what Paul says to the Corinthians after he says, identifies this sin. He says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Now, when we were in that passage, which was quite a while ago, I pointed out the fact that that the reason that Paul can say, you're you're arrogant, you're proud, you're puffed up, is because, uh, in a sense, they thought they were being uh, more uh, generous and merciful than God. Okay. They, were, they were looking at this, what, what really is just an awful, grievous sin, and they were basically saying, you know, look how broad-minded we are. Look how open we are. Look how loving we are. I mean, we are, we are an affirming church. Paul says, you're arrogant because you've taken your standards and you've elevated them above God's. Now, this is, this is the, virtually the entire Christian context of the United States nowadays. Okay. Taking a, a standard that is that is clearly contrary to God's standard and then elevating it in a way that basically says, we're more open-minded than God. We're more tolerant than God. We're more merciful than God. We're more free and open and loving than God. And God says, your, your problem is not uh, uh, compassionate liberality. Your problem is arrogance. And the arrogance manifests itself In unrighteousness, you have gone contrary to the standard of God. And so, in a sense, you can think of of, of this this Corinthian church. And so, when Paul says, uh, love does not rejoice at an unrighteousness, you have a church that that really was um, throwing God's word to the to the side and doing what they wanted to do. And so unrighteousness would be, of course, in the most generic sense, all sin or injustice, which would violate God's standards or God's character. And so unrighteousness, think of it this way, unrighteousness is behavior that robs God of his glory. So you see how the Corinthians were doing this? The the, the Corinthians weren't concerned about God's glory. They were concerned about protecting their own favorite sins. And so everything that's contrary to the spirit of Christ and to the spirit of the gospel is unrighteousness. Now, Paul says specifically, 
love does not rejoice at unrighteousness. And so rejoicing in or at or with something means um, you're taking pleasure from it. Okay? To rejoice in something means that, that, that whatever that is, it's giving you joy. All right? Now, there, there's a lot of stuff that is um, uh, perfectly legitimate to, uh, to rejoice in, that uh, it does reflect God's kindness to us and even his common grace. But here's what Paul says. Paul says that love does not rejoice at unrighteousness. And so here's rejoicing, which of course is an affection. It's, it's a disposition. It's an inclination of the heart, and Paul says that love does not take pleasure. It doesn't get joy from unrighteousness. Now, I, I think that it's probably pretty fair to say that, that it, it, in one sense, Paul means that love doesn't take pleasure in personal unrighteousness. Okay? I think that's that's probably pretty apparent. The heart is not uh, inclined to or delight in the unrighteousness that's in my life. Okay? So if I'm a child of God and there's unrighteousness in me, okay, first of all, is that is that a given? Yeah, all of us have unrighteousness, Okay. Um, it's just another way of saying all of us have iniquity, all of us have sin, all of us, all of us have areas where we're not living uh, for God's glory in the way that we should. Uh, uh, all of us have areas where, where, <laughs> where there's actually even wickedness in our hearts. Okay? Just take a glance around you. You know what you see? You see really nice people. And each and every one of us are wicked. And the Christian doesn't rejoice in the unrighteousness of his own life. He grieves over it. You see that unrighteousness and it comes out in thought or word or deed and... Paul says, love doesn't rejoice in that. The child of God grieves over over his sin. But love doesn't, not only doesn't take pleasure in its own unrighteousness, but love doesn't take pleasure in the unrighteousness found in others. You know, it's kind of interesting because... um, I was thinking about the way that this kind of works. Love does not take pleasure in unrighteousness found in others, right? There's, there's really kind of two ways that, that you can take pleasure in the unrighteousness of somebody else, okay? Don't, you know, don't raise your hand and say, well, I, I do that all the time, but sometimes we can maliciously gloat over another person's failures and sins. 
you might think to yourself, well, I wouldn't do that. But the fact is, is that there are times where people fall into grievous sin and there's something in our hearts that's not very loving that kind of says, yep, I knew it. Be sure your sin will find you out. Yep. And it almost makes us feel self-righteous. But I think there's another way, and this is... This, for instance, is is in Psalm 50. Um, I've quoted this passage before. There's another way to take pleasure in the wickedness of others, and it's not just sort of gloating over their own moral failures, right? By the way, our, our hearts should always break at the moral failures of others. Psalm 50, verse 16, But to the wicked God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and cast my words behind you. And notice this, when you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. And you let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. So there's another way to take pleasure in other people's unrighteousness, and that is to uh, sort of secretly enjoy their sin vicariously. You see that person... I'll never, I'll never forget years. This is this goes back many, many, many years ago. Dealing with a, with a guy that was at that time probably in his late twenties, early thirties. He was having all kinds of struggles, and he worked for a guy who was a womanizer and drove like a red Corvette and had all the money that he could hope for. And the guy tells me, I see this guy and I envy what he has. All the women, all the money, the nice car, and he doesn't seem to have a care in the world. So here's here's the fact is that love doesn't rejoice in my own personal unrighteousness, it grieves over it. Love doesn't gloat in the moral failures of others. I am grieved over their moral failures as well. And love doesn't secretly um, uh, isn't secretly pleased with the uh, unrighteousness of others. The question is, is what, why does love not rejoice with unrighteousness? Well, this should be, this should be fairly obvious to us, I would think, and that is when, when your heart is filled with the love of God through Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God dwells in you, 
You love God above everyone else. When the Spirit of God dwells in your heart through faith in Christ, you love God above everyone else. You love God above everything else. And it's not as if there aren't battles and and internal struggles and, and all of that, but there is a sense in which when the gospel comes to us, the, the righteousness of God becomes precious to the child of God, right? So the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, right? And then what does Paul say before that? I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written the just shall live by faith. And so there's a sense in which when when God comes to us through the gospel of his son by the power of the spirit there is this there is this wonderful sense in which in which I now love what God loves. And it means I hate what God hates. I'm opposed to what God opposes. Now, like I said, it's not as if... You know that once you're born again, all of a sudden you just have this 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 straight uh, 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 uninterrupted trajectory upward of of just more and more and more love to God. But the fact is is that is that God births something into our nature so that I know now my affections have been awakened in such a way, my mind has been uh, 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 awakened in such a way that the things that I once hated because I was opposed to them in my darkness, now those are the things that I love and the things that I loved, my idols, my sins, I know God is opposed to those things and so I hate those things like God hates those things. By the way, when you love what God loves and hate what God hates, then your affections have been aligned according to the truth. You you, you do understand that the biggest battle that we face day in and day out in trying to follow Jesus is what am I going to love? What am I going to love most? What affections are going to triumph? Is it going to be my affections for God and for his word and for his standards and for a life of, of, of the beauty of holiness? Am I going to love that or am I going to have my heart getting drawn, gravitating towards my idols? And so my battle day in and day out is to, is to kindle proper aligned affections for God and his word so that my loves don't rejoice in any unrighteousness. 
when the heart of the Christian is filled with love, there's a, there's a disposition towards righteousness. When I say righteousness, I mean not the kind of righteousness that we talk about in justification. I'm talking about the kind of righteousness that is, that is the ethical, practical righteousness of conformity to the will of God. And so that, that heart that God gives us is a heart that, that looks out for wanting to please God in this life, but it looks out for the good of others. And so if, if I'm actually looking out for the good, if I, if I really love you and are really concerned about you, and I see you going down the path of unrighteousness, I don't rejoice in that. Out of love for you, I have to say, for the sake of your soul, stop. For the sake of God's glory, stop. Repent. So we live, we live in a time where, you know, to, to bring any kind of correction to somebody is to automatically offend them. I mean, it is, it is, it is insane to me how sensitive people are, right? It's just absolutely insane. I mean, you want to, what, what you want to say, of course, this might not come across as very loving, but you, might, you want to say, you know, hey, put, put on your big boy pants and grow up. And so if I see you or you see me doing something in which I'm denigrating the glory of God in my life and I am violating the standards of God, real love doesn't say, as long as you're happy. You understand that that's just a bunch of nonsense. All I care about is your happiness. Okay, well, you know what that means? That then means that you really don't care where I end up. Because the happiness of which you speak is temporary happiness. Because if you were concerned about my eternal happiness, you'd say something to me. So the heart of a, of a loving Christian actually just looks at others and looks at self, grieves over unrighteousness, and never rejoices in it. Then Paul says this. But it, this is, Paul takes the word rejoice, and then he puts a little prefix on it, so love co-rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices together with the truth. Now, we go, uh, so, so uh, tell me, what, what's the contrast in, in the two lines? Well, you have, the, you have the similarity, love rejoices. Love does not rejoice, love rejoices. But you have unrighteousness, and then you have Truth. 
right? So however Paul's using truth has to be related somehow, connected somehow to this idea of of righteousness. So truth might be just uh, uh, simply another way to assert righteousness or, or goodness. Uh, some commentators take it to be the gospel itself. Uh, Edwards um, makes the observation. He says truth is, is used in different ways. Sometimes truth is used in the sense of, uh, of, of, of the doctrines of Christianity, right? So you have truth. So it's sort of an objective truth. So the doctrine of the incarnation or the doctrine of the bodily resurrection or something like that. But then he says, sometimes truth is used in a sense of my personal knowledge and embrace of the truth. So in other words, it's not objective truth that's outside of me, it's truth that now, because I believe it, resides in me, okay? Right? So, by the way, this isn't, this isn't uh, the idea of, well, now it, my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. That's not what, what, what Edwards would mean by any stretch. The idea is, is that when you internalize objective truth, it becomes yours, okay? This is why Paul can talk about my gospel, It's not as if he was just saying, hey, you got your gospel, I got my gospel. As long as you got a gospel. And so Edward says, so you can use truth that way. But then he says, there's also a sense where you can use the word truth. And this would be uh, a connection to Old Testament roots. The idea of truth would be the idea of faithfulness. Okay, That which is true is that which is faithful. And by the way, that's how God is often described. He is abounding in loving kindness and truth. And sometimes we say loving kindness and faithfulness, all right? But then Edward says that, that sometimes you can use the word in reference to the way a person lives. So um, he, what, he, what he was a virtue and holiness of life. And, and he draws uh, from this uh, 3 John 3 that where John the Apostle says, I have no greater joy than this than to know that my children are doing what? Anybody remember? Walking in truth. Okay. Walking in truth, right? And so there is, in the Bible, there's certainly this, this connection, right, between truth and righteousness. I'd like you to look at a, at a passage with me. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Now, don't get all excited. We're not going to be preaching on the Antichrist right now. Yeah, bummer. Verse eight. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness, okay, of unrighteousness, for those who perish, because 
they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. You see that? Why are people lost? Because they don't receive the love of the truth. Notice, Paul does not say, because they did not uh, receive the truth. He doesn't say, because they did not accept the truth. He says, because they did not receive the love of the truth. So as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so they will believe what is false. So here's, here's, the, here's the quick lesson. If you don't love the truth, you are vulnerable to believing that which is false. It's really simple. And you say, well, you know what? I believe the Bible, so I'm safe and secure. Not so fast. So many people will twist what the Scripture says, and it is hardly a love for the truth. And in fact, the deluding influence of believing that which is false sometimes comes through twisted Bibles. And then Paul says this, in order that they may be judged, look at this, who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Yeah. It's pretty powerful, I think. So Paul says, love rejoices with the truth. And um, sorry to refer to Edwards again, but I read his sermon today, and his sermons are just way better than mine. Edwards says, truth, all that's good in life and all that is Christian holy practice, right? So, so Edwards just takes like the biggest possible picture of what truth is. Everything that's good, right? Everything that is Christian and holy practice. Now, of course, Paul does talk about truth, Titus 1.1, truth that is in accord with godliness. Okay? So what is it to, to co-rejoice with the truth. Again, to rejoice in something is what? To take delight in, to oh, listen, to derive pleasure from. Okay? Now, it is possible that Paul's compound word that I've said co-rejoice is actually also expressing intensity. The idea of maybe even um, feeling or expressing joy from the depth of your heart. Okay, so to to rejoice together with the truth is to take pleasure in the truth. You think about it that way, or do you think do you think um, <laughs> take pleasure in the truth? That is. That is uh, the affections. So a lot of times what we do is something like this. Truth, cerebral, intellect, brain. Paul says, truth, heart. 
okay? So to rejoice in the truth is to take pleasure in the truth. So think about it this way. To take pleasure in the truth is, first of all, to have, to have spiritually tuned ears that delights in the beauty of the melody of God's truth. So anybody like classical music? All right, there's like six people that aren't Philistines. So I'll listen to classical music, but there are certain things that I like like to listen to, all right? Um, uh, Wagner, Flight of the Valkyries, you know? You know why I like that so much? Because in Apocalypse Now, that's where Robert Duvall's flying over in his helicopter. Anyway, uh, so there's good reasons why to like classical music. But have you ever had this experience where, where you're, you're listening to something, and you don't have to be a musically astute person or, or, or not, it doesn't matter. You're listening, and the intricacy and the way that the instruments come together, symphony, by the way, the, the, a, a, sound, a co-sound, sound that comes together, and, and, and you hear it, and it's just, it does something to you, right? You, you know what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, Hank Williams doesn't quite do the same thing, right, as, let's say, Beethoven, um, uh, but you listen to some of these and your heart starts to just sort of soar with the beauty of it, okay? And um, that's like God's truth. Except to the soul, it's more beautiful than Mozart. And it's more beautiful than Beethoven. And it's more beautiful than my favorite, Hector Berlioz, March to the Scaffold. I love that. I listen to it. There's a story behind it. You listen to it, you just... The Word of God is sweeter music to the soul than the best of the best. Classical music. That's what it is to rejoice in the truth. The truth is a song. It's a symphony. And your heart rejoices in the melody of it. Because you can hear it. You can hear it. Or to rejoice in the truth would be to to see the beauty of the truth. One, one thing that we, we're not very good at as 21st century sort of evangelish kind of jellyfishish kind of people, we don't, we, don't ha- we don't really have a theology of beauty. And we should. You know who talked about the beauty of God all the time? Jonathan Edwards. 
the beauty of God. The beauty of God. So the idea is that to rejoice in the truth is not only to have ears to hear the, the melody, all right? That was a terrible melody, Bob. I'd change that if I were you. <laughs> That's all right. People get old. All right. <laughs> but see, but, when, but then it's not just hearing it, right? It's actually seeing it. But seeing it isn't seen with, with your physical eyes as it is seen with the eyes of your heart. And so this is Paul's prayer, by the way, in Ephesians 1, that God would, would open the eyes of our hearts. So to rejoice in the truth is, is to see the beauty of it, to hear the melody of it, but it's also to taste it. Now you do remember, David says, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I would seek after that I would dwell in the house of the Lord and meditate in his temple and behold the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life. And so there's a hearing, there's a seeing, but there's also a tasting You know that, for instance, Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 repeatedly say that the word of God is sweeter than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. You know what that means? It means you're supposed to taste it. So Calvin has this great statement in the, in the Institutes where he says the, the problem with the unregenerate person is that they don't have any spiritual taste buds. None. When, when, when God awakens your heart, there is a taste and see that the Lord is good. There is a seeing, there is a hearing, there is a tasting, and it is being captivated with the beauty of God and his truth. Love rejoices in the truth. You know what, the the thing is, is that you don't have to, these these aren't physical faculties, You could have both of your eyes gouged out and still see the beauty of Christ. Get a brain surgery and lose most of your taste and still taste that the Lord is good and that his word is sweet. And you could be deaf, as deaf as Beethoven, and hear the melody of God's truth singing because it doesn't hit your eardrums, it hits your soul. 
Love rejoices in the truth. And so as, as Christians, we come and we say, first, so, you know, remember, remember Pilate, there's Jesus at the praetorium. And uh, Pilate asks this immortal question. What is truth? You, you, have to, you have to appreciate uh, John's gospel because Jesus in the upper room had just identified himself as, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here's Pilate, as blind as could be. What is truth? You know what? The angels, now I don't have this on good authority, but the angels probably looked at each other and said, what an idiot. Truth incarnate is standing right in front of them and wants to know what truth is. He could reach out and touch truth. So we come to Scripture, you know what we see? God is truth. God is truth. God is true, so follow me on the distinction here. God is true, Romans 3, 8. Let God be true, every man a liar. But God is truth. God is, is the very as it were, personification of everything that comports to reality. God is truth. And the scripture repeatedly tells us that God is truth. And the Lord Jesus himself is, as it were, truth incarnate. The way, the truth, and the life. And then, by by the way, there's this... uh, uh, Really, this magnificent Trinitarian dimension to truth, right? So, Lord God of truth, the psalmist says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. And when the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. So, truth is is Trinitarian. But truth is also that which saves and sanctifies us. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see, we live in uh, I should have asked Charlie beforehand how this how this goes. Um, I'm thinking of the guy in my head that talked about the church being uh, therapeutic, moralistic psychology. You know what I'm talking about, Charlie? Can you help me? Okay, that's all right. Love still rejoices in the truth. Okay. We 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 live we live in a culture where everything is is therapeutic 
It's not just, no, it's not philosophy. It's everything is designed to make you feel good about yourself. Okay? It's therapeutic. Everything's designed to make you feel good about yourself. And in fact, so the theory goes, if I can just feel good enough about myself, then I'll stop doing things that harm myself. Okay? Nonsense. Feeling good about myself doesn't set me free. The truth sets me free. And he whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And so, uh, oh, theistic, deistic, therapeutic moralism. Something like that, right, Charlie? Yeah, there we go. So, this is what God is reduced to for a lot of people. God is, God is a means to help you feel better about yourself. Which is exactly, of course, what Isaiah experienced in, in Isaiah chapter 6. Right? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The, the train of his robe filled the temple. The foundations of the temple shook. The, the cherubim sang an antiphonal response, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory. And I said, wow. How special I must be. It's not the way it works. You know, Isaiah's road to healing started with, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have just seen the Lord, the King of glory. And so, truth is what sets us free. Truth is what saves us. And by the way, truth is what sanctifies us. And and while, while I'm on this, Right? You remember this, right? Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Okay. Sanctification comes by the truth. So we're born again, James 1.18, by the word of truth. The word is the, the instrument by which the spirit brings the new birth. But the word is also the instrument by which he sanctifies us. And here's, here's where we have to be careful. Because what we do is, is that we take, we take worldly categories and then we stick terms of sanctification on worldly categories. And we're no longer talking about what the Bible's talking about. We're talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs with nice little theological labels. The sanctification is not designed to bring you 
to a place of self-esteem. Sanctification is designed to bring you to conformity to the image of Christ. And that means that the Spirit of God will use the Word of God to, to cut deep. To excise the cancer of sin. How, I mean, how many of you know what it's like actually to be on, on the Holy Spirit's gurney and to have him wielding the scalpel which is the word of God, digging deep. And it is, it is a lousy surgeon who puts that scalpel in and the patient goes, ouch, and he goes, I'm sorry, I'll stop. Sometimes the Holy Spirit just simply says, that, oh, that hurt? Good. I'm going to go deeper. And I'm going to go deeper. No superficial healing. This is, this, by the way, is just old-fashioned sanctification. Spirit of God using the word of God, either with the delicacy of a scalpel or, let's just say, the uh, not-so-delicate use of a club. Have you ever been smacked upside the head by the Holy Spirit with the word of God? This is, this is what God does. So this, by the way, this is why you love the truth. This is why you love truth. So truth is, is precious. It's worth living for. It is eternal. It produces love. Paul says to Timothy, the goal of our instruction, of our teaching truth, is love. From a pure heart and a good conscience. That's the goal. Love from a pure heart and a good conscience. And so, what do we need more than anything else? We must must love the truth. I want to hear it. I want to see it. I want to taste it. I want to sing it myself. I've got a new song in my heart. A song of praise to God. So, love and truth, of course, are inseparable. Right? Truth without love, somebody once said, is harsh or hard or something like that. And love without truth isn't really love. Love and truth go together. John Piper has this statement. I forget where I found this. He says, our concern with truth is in an inevitable expression of our concern with God. Not to care about truth is not to care about God. You you remember that next time you're talking to somebody that doesn't think that there's anything to truth, anything objective about it. Just love Jesus and everything is okay. No, to not care about truth is to not care about God. 
To love God passionately, Piper says, is to love truth passionately. Being God-centered in life means being truth-driven in life. So the Christian rejoices over the truth. Now, this kind of struck me earlier, and I have to say it. I'll say it quickly. What happens if you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, truth is boring to me. Or, I get more joy out of out of sports than I do truth. Or I get more joy out of politics. Oh, no, I know that sounds utterly ridiculous, but I will tell you this. There are not a few Christians who will speak glowingly, freely about the magnificencies of Donald Trump and yet can't get one word of praise out of their mouth for the Lord Jesus. You know it's true. They find it easy to engage in political discussion, but you try to talk to them about truth, and all of a sudden, it's as if the well just ran dry. So what, what, if, what if, just by remote chance, you're sitting there and you're thinking, I think truth is boring, and I get more excited about this than I do the truth. Well, let me just tell you that if that's, that's where you are. Maybe you're a young person and you're like, I can think of a lot of things more exciting to me than truth. Then here's what you need to do. You need to confess to God your grossly, idolatrously misplaced affections. You have to confess that. Lord, there's other stuff that I get more excited about than you. And there's stuff that I take more pleasure in than your truth. And these are the things. And then you need to plead with God. And ask him for a larger heart that results in a deeper hunger. You know what the psalmist does in Psalm 119? Numerous times. He prays, enlarge my heart so that I can run in the way of your commandments. My battle in the morning is I wake up and my heart for God and His truth is not big enough. But my heart for other things, when I get up, is 
just fine. Big, beating, pulsating heart for baseball. It's true. I wake up. I love, I love baseball. I love basketball. It doesn't, it doesn't take me any effort at all to get engaged and to have an enlarged heart. Wake up in the morning and my battle is God make my heart bigger for you than it is for that. That's your battle with sin, by the way. That is your battle with sin. And so you pray and you read and you meditate and you're, you're trying to enlarge your heart and then you ask God, God, give me that heart. Help me to love truth, rejoice in it. And then you know what happens? God answers the prayers of his people. If you kindle and stoke love for the truth and you're pleading with God, enlarge my heart, the spirit of God will ignite it and will inflame it with love for the truth. That's what the Holy Spirit loves to do. It's the Holy Spirit doing me what you love to do. Please, may we be people who definitely don't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoice with the truth. Seeing it, tasting it, singing it, hearing it. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would take more and more pleasure in the truth. We pray that we would take more and more joy in you and in your Son and in the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that your Spirit would help us to see where we have rejoiced in unrighteousness. Lord, maybe even secretly envying the wicked. We pray you'd expose that in our hearts. And we pray that you would sanctify us in the truth tonight. For the glory of your son, Jesus, who is the truth. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.